Amen. Well, let's we'll turn to Acts chapter 15 for the sermons uh, reading this morning. Acts chapter 15, and the sermon title is no surprise. If anyone's familiar with Acts 15, you can you can come up with a title yourself. I'm sure the title is the Jerusalem Council. The Jerusalem Council. And I'm going to read from Acts chapter 15 from verses 1 through to 22. Let's hear the word of God. It says here, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders. And they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Verse 11, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they had finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, 
that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who were called by my name, says the Lord, who make these things known from of old. Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabas and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter, the brothers, both the apostles and the elders to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us having come to one accord to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch and having gathered, the con having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. We'll stop there. The reading actually was to 32, not 22, but we'll put that to one side. The sermon title is this, The Jerusalem Council. What can we learn from this this morning? What can we glean from the Word of God? Is it just that was a council 2,000 years ago, and uh, what's that got to do with us now? Well, it's got everything to do with us in, in, in many ways, because all of Scripture is inspired of God and is profitable for that reason alone. But this council settled a very important issue for us. As we think about all the great things now, as we look at the book of Acts, all the great things that had happened since Jesus was raised from the dead. You imagine that. You imagine if you were a disciple and your children were part of your household and you, you brought home news to your wife one evening that we put all of our hopes in Jesus, but he's dead. He's actually buried now. And, uh, and you then get to the tomb to find that he's not there. But that's not the whole story. The good news is 
is that he was raised from the dead and then he appeared to his disciples. You saw the risen Christ. That's wonderful. What would you want to do? You want to cling to him. Jesus, come to my home and let's have a meal together. And uh, they've not got the whole picture clear in their minds just yet. That's typical for us as disciples. We, we try to figure things out, but Jesus then spent 40 days with the disciples and uh, teaching them Christ preaching Christ. Can you imagine that? Christ preaching Christ. And then what happened was, he said, I'm now going to ascend to heaven. And he ascends to heaven, and you're thinking, where's that going to leave us now? And then 10 days later, the church, in between time, they're gathering together of one accord, and they're praying together. Don't we need that recovered in our own generation? The church giving themselves to prayer, pleading God for his blessing. But a unique thing happened on what's known as the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit was poured out. What a wonderful thing that is. How little attention we often give to the momentous importance of the day of Pentecost. We rejoice as we confess in the Apostles' Creed of the incarnation of Jesus. But how much do we rejoice about the sending of the third person of the Trinity on the day of Pentecost? Now, what we're breaking into in Acts 15 now is we're seeing the Gospels now spreading all over the place and Gentiles, probably by the hundreds, are now coming into the kingdom of God. Uncircumcised Gentiles. You say to them, have, have you, do you enjoy reading the book of Judges? The book of Judges? They've never heard of the book of Judges. You think, what ignoramuses are these people that are coming into the church? They've never even memorized John 3.16. You know why that is? John 3.16 has not even been written yet. And so these people have been brought to a saving faith in Jesus, and they're coming into the kingdom of God. And this is now causing a perplexing question for some people, but not for all. Why? It says in 15 verse 1, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, and here's the key line, unless, unless, unless you are circumcised, According to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That's massive. Let that sink into our ears. Let me just say it one more time. Their message was, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses. It's not even mentioning that it was, it was given to Abraham. Didn't you notice that? According to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So the purity of the gospel is at stake here. And the purity of the gospel always will be at stake. Because the devil doesn't take a holiday. He's always seeking to devour whom he can. But this was a major conflict, one of such as is momentous in the history of the church. And I have three headings for us this morning. And I've got to say, they're not my headings. I'm not um, embarrassed to say that. Actually, they're from a commentary by Guy Prentice Waters. And I can't improve on them. And so I've got three headings for us. Uh, the first heading is conflict. Conflict. The second heading is counsel. 
And the third heading is consensus. Three headings, conflict, counsel, and consensus. So let's get to our first heading, first of all, conflict, which began in chapter 14. As people were getting converted in the whole Galatian region, uh, never mind in Antioch, which was a, Antioch of Syria was a Gentile, uh, primarily Gentile church, is that these Gentiles are really pressing in and really grasping the gospel and really loving Jesus and really enjoying hearing as much preaching as they can get. But conflict begins to emerge because people are saying, unless they do this, they cannot be saved. Have you ever come across that kind of argument? I've met people occasionally uh, from a, a, some kind of denomination called, um, I don't know what it's called, not Christ Church, anything to do in, in, in Sheffield, anything like that, but um, Church of Christ. Uh, and uh, they would hold certain views that unless you've been baptized in a particular manner, you won't be saved. I've also met people, they say, unless you've been baptized in the name of Jesus, you cannot be saved. I've met that kind of a group of people. And so you say, well, I have, I've been baptized. So I was baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And, and they say, well, that's fine, but that, that's not enough. If you've only been baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, you need to be baptized again, and this time in the name of Jesus. And if you're a vulnerable, younger Christian, you think, oh, oh dear, dear. And people follow that teaching. And so it's not a new thing, people adding to the gospel. So this is no small thing, but aren't we thankful this morning that as we see this conflict, that the apostles impose no such requirement. In the midst of this conflict which they discuss, they impose no such requirement. Why? At the death of Jesus, the shedding of all blood finished. At the death of Jesus, the shedding of all future blood finished. What does circumcision involve? When a young boy is circumcised, there's the shedding of blood. Now, for Abraham, he was baptized as an old man. There's the shedding of blood. And so every circumcision points us to the day when blood will be shed upon the cross. But the blood of Jesus shed upon the cross is the last blood that God ever requires. Furthermore, there was the Passover, which was central to the whole sacrificial system among the Jews. And what's sacrificed there? A lamb is sacrificed and blood is shed. But with the death of Jesus, there's no need for the further shedding of any blood. The blood of Jesus is sufficient to save us to what? From the guttermost to the uttermost. Hallelujah. What a gospel we have. And so when people are saying, unless they're adding to the word of God, this was a major conflict for the church. Because it goes on a little bit further. Did you notice that it doesn't stop there? Because we get into... Uh, the council that's beginning to emerge. But before we get there, in verse 5, it says, But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, 
and they now add even more requirements. They say it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Whoa, whoa, whoa. That's, you didn't tell us that in the beginning. I got circumcised, and now you're telling me that's just the beginning. They're saying if you, unless you do that, you can't be saved. If you keep all these requirements, that's the only way. And what is it? It's an anathema. It's a false gospel. It's not a gospel. And it'll come up time and time again in the church. We'll always face this attack. And it was such a conflict that emerged... And it's a conflict that we can be describe it in one word, and it's called legalism. Legalism. A legalistic approach to salvation wants to add to salvation. A legalistic approach to salvation wants to add to salvation beyond the requirements of Holy Scripture. And that would be lethal for the conversion of the Gentiles. It's what's known as a Judaizing approach to the gospel. It's a violent attack by Satan in Acts 15 against the gospel. So there's this huge conflict that happens. And our second heading is the answer to that conflict. It's this council. It's a council which is our second heading now, which we see in 15 and verse 6. It says, The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. So this wasn't church members that were asked, well, what, what do you think? This is a valid point to ask church members at certain times. This is a, a key doctrinal matter to do with the gospel, and the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter in verse 7, after there had been much debate. Much debate. Now, what we're going to learn here is that we don't get a, like with many of the sermons, we don't get a, a verbatim account, word by word, of all the debates. We get the summary of the arguments. And we're only going to look at three this morning. Peter, Paul and Barnabas, and then also the summing up argument, which is by Jacob. You say, Jacob? I'm flicking through. I didn't mean to see Jacob. Where's Jacob? Well, it's because James is the anglicized version of the name Jacob. Jacob, or James, if you determine to still keep calling him James, but Jacob, which is what the Greek renders, and the Dutch Bible renders it Jacob, and the German Bible renders it Jacob, and this Jacob was a brother of the Lord Jesus. Imagine that. But he's not asked to speak because he was a brother of Jesus. He's a leading uh, elder in the church in Jerusalem, and he's very influential. So we'll look at these three men briefly. Let's look at the council, and we see firstly Peter. What do you think Peter's going to say? He's going to, Peter going to say to him, yep, let's get them all circumcised. They deserve it. Why should we get circumcised and they don't? No, well, he doesn't say that. What does he say in, in the Word of God? It's recorded for us in verse 11. If you have a, um, a copy of his scriptures, it says here, uh, Peter says, let me just get to, um, yeah, verse, and after much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, 
you know that in the early days uh, God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Peter was the first man to preach the gospel to the Gentiles and the Holy Spirit was poured out from heaven and they were saved. And they were all saved then without being asked to be circumcised. So why change the rules now? And it says in verse 8, And God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test? By placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. Isn't that amazing? The legalists don't come to you and say, look, we've never been able to handle this burden, but we're going to put it on you anyway regardless. And that's why Jesus would say to the Pharisees, you hypocrites. Because that's what legalism will do. Legalism will always lead to hypocrisy. Because we cannot save ourselves. That's why Jesus preached. And listen to this pastorally this morning. Come, Jesus says. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. And what does Jesus say? I will give you rest. What a great shepherd we have. What a message we have this morning. Good news. We can go down the path this morning, jumping and leaping and praising God. That we don't have to please God by our own performance. Jesus has saved us. Are you feeling weary this morning spiritually? What does Jesus say? Come to him. Come and rest your head upon the breast of Christ. And so Peter says in verse 11, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. And here's a word to memorize. The grace of the Lord Jesus. Grace, the unmerited favor. Salvation is by grace alone. That doesn't mean that we don't seek to live a life that obeys the Lord. That's not the point. But we're saved, though, by grace. Paul and Barnabas, they're invited next to give their contribution because they've been preaching the gospel in the whole Galatian region. And, and breakthroughs have been happening left, right, and center. So what are Paul and Barnabas going to say in 15 and verse 12? It says, and all the assembly fell silent. Imagine that. A real hush over the whole congregation. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul, Barnabas and Paul, as they related what signs and wonders God had done among them, among the Gentiles. Barnabas was a deeply respected brother. Paul was, but of course, we know from the book of Acts that, you know, he'd done some terrible things against the church. But not so Barnabas, but it's recorded what signs and wonders God did among the Gentiles. And their conclusion leads the way for the third and closing contribution that seals the whole council. It's the contribution of James or Jacob. And it says here in verse 13, after they finished speaking, 
James or Jacob replied. And as I've said, this man, James or, or Jacob, which is his real name, is the brother of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And clearly, he's not only influential, he's very respected, and he sums up all the debate. And he says, brothers, listen to me. Simeon, that's Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets. And he actually cites what? He cites the book of Amos. Well, let's be encouraged by this this morning because what we learn from this quotation from Amos is a whole series of, of God speaking in the book of Amos saying, God saying, I will return. I will rebuild. I will rebuild its ruins. I will restore it. Are you feeling discouraged by the church at this moment in time? It will be legitimate if you do. But let's put our hope in Christ, not first and foremost in the church, because here we see in Holy Scripture, the Lord promises, I will return, I will rebuild. And the, the resurrection of Jesus gives us constant hope for the church in 2021 and 22. Jesus was raised from the dead, and therefore we always have a living hope that the time will come that God will raise his church again. It may not be in my lifetime, but it might be. It may not be in your lifetime, but it might be. Because Jesus has been raised from the dead, we always have a living hope. And we need to pray that for the church, don't we? Do you see your own need to be revived? Or is it, you're okay, but the rest of the church, they're the problem. No, we all need the reviving hand of God. We need a reviving of prayer, a reviving of heartfelt contrition to be bowed down before the Lord. And what did they say? James suggested there's four things we're going to just ask them to do. To abstain from things polluted by idols, abstain from sexual immorality, abstain from what has been strangled and abstain from blood. Now, I've eaten a lot of things over the years, um, especially overseas. I, I, to my memory, I don't think I've eaten anything that's been strangled. But that's by the by. If someone does eat something that's been strangled, they don't suddenly lose their salvation and go to hell. These are probably simple guidelines that are given which are connected with Greco-Roman idolatry because there were temples to Zeus and temples to, I don't know, Pluto and whatever else and they often involve these things of blood sacrifices and probably drinking pure blood and this is important for us. When I was a young Christian I didn't know about all these kind of rules and I enjoyed black pudding. Now someone, now, and this might be you know your personal taste, what I'm just saying is this mature brother came up to me and said, Kevin, we, we really love you and we're really thankful that you're saved. Okay. You know, it's leading somewhere, don't you? And it's but. It had come to his attention by some friends of mine that I was eating black pudding. He said, but you've been eating black pudding. I said, well, I was a new Christian. I mean, what's wrong with black pudding? And uh, 
so he said to me, well, the Bible says you mustn't eat black pudding. And so he showed me this to abstain from blood. So for, for I don't know, the next couple of years, I, I steered a wide berth on black pudding. I thought, I don't want to displease the Lord. But things get worse. There is a false group today called the Jehovah's Witnesses. And they take this little line, abstain from blood, and their whole exegesis in every area is corrupted. They have a corrupted view of salvation, corrupted view of Jesus, corrupted view of who God is, a corrupted view of heaven, a corrupted view of hell, a corrupted view of everything, and therefore we're not surprised they have a corrupted view of this. But they interpret to abstain from blood, saying that no people should ever have blood transfusions or receive any blood. And how many people have suffered under such false teaching? Now, someone says, yeah, but that's the Jehovah's Witnesses. It's not the true church. The point is this, is we've got to be careful that we rightly exegete Scripture. I'm not here preaching black pudding or not black pudding. You eat whatever you want. The point is that the import of the text is that there are not a whole bunch of legalistic requirements being put upon them. And so then, they're actually asked to go around, and our third heading now is a consensus. That's the third and last heading. We've looked at the conflict and this council, and now this consensus in verse 22. Look at verse 22, or here at verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church. So this is not apostles and elders ruling it over the church. No, everybody now, apostles, elders, and the whole church, to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. And they sent Judas, called Barsabas and Silas, leading men and Roman brothers, with the following letter. They sent an official letter which was intended to pastor uh, the flocks of God. It says... The letter says this, the brothers, both the apostles and the elders, um, were the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions. Verse 25, it seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. It says in verse 22, it seemed good to the apostles and to the elders and to the whole church. God brought them to a wonderful consensus there. Can you imagine, without that, the church could have been ripped apart. A wonderful consensus to stop the church being ripped apart. And in verse 25, I love this verse. This is another one for the fridge door. Verse 25, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. It seemed good to us, having come to one accord. Verse 28, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden. In verse 25, but children here in particular, 
They have very sharp minds, don't you, children? You do. And therefore, it's a mistake that children are taken out of worship services, especially as they become teenagers. As teenagers, they're, they're being more challenged intellectually than probably almost at any other time they'll face in their life. And so, therefore, they need a gospel that will challenge their minds. And here is a Greek word that I'm going to give us in a moment. And it says here in verse 25, it seemed good to us having come to one accord. You ready for this Greek word? It's easy. Homothumadon. Homothumadon. That's not complicated. You know, people say, well, this is a bit heavy. There's nothing heavy about it. I know of people who memorize every single football player and the team they support and even all the details about them so people can remember all kinds of details. Let me give you an example. When was the last time you went to the doctors and the doctors said, I think you may have been suffering with disease X. You know nothing about it. You say, Dr. Smith, uh, what is uh, this? And what do you do? You get up, you're on the internet, you're suddenly you know, researching NHS, you suddenly go into that, so that doesn't give you enough information, and suddenly, within weeks, you become a, a real expert on disease X. So we can apply ourselves to what we want to do. Here is a really important word for all of us this morning. It's homothumadon. What does homothumadon mean? It means to be of one accord. It's a word that we find repeatedly in the book of Acts. They were praying together in Acts chapter 1, and God's Holy Spirit brought them into one accord. And what happened in Acts chapter 2? The Holy Spirit was poured out. It seems there's a pattern here in the Word of God, of God bringing the church to be of one accord prior to the Lord pouring out his blessing. In Acts chapter 4, we see they, they were of one accord as they prayed in the midst of persecution. Sovereign Lord, look at these threats that we're facing. Please hear and answer. And it says, and they spoke the word of God with even more boldness. Therefore, we need to be praying. We need, we need to be putting on our lips. If you can't remember the Greek word homothumadon, the English translation is of one accord, praying that the church, not only here, but the church around our nation, will be brought to one accord under the banner of the truth of God. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. If this church had not been, not this church, I'm talking about this council, it was the whole church then, if they'd not been brought to one accord, it could have ripped the church in shreds. But praise God that didn't happen. Because God is more powerful than anyone or anything else. And God intervened and brought the church here and this letter was sent out and in verse 28, it says, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. And then they finished off with the letter that which was read out in the churches, farewell. Well, how do you think the Gentiles would receive this? Would they say, no, 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 we, we, we want to be under this burden. So it says in verse 30, so they went, when they were sent off, this was Paul and Barnabas and those two brothers as well, they were sent off, they went down to Antioch and having gathered the congregation, uh, they delivered the letter and when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. The gospel will bring us true 
joy. Do you have true joy this morning? The gospel will bring true joy to us. This is not a miserable message. It's why it's called good news. And so as we conclude this morning, there are three things, I think, for us to consider. The first is, as we've heard, and as we keep on hearing all the way through the book of Acts, is about the person called the Holy Spirit. And we need to be reminded, we are always in desperate need for the help of the Holy Spirit in the church. I heard recently from a friend of mine saying, I think it was a Chinese brother, if I've got, heard the story correctly, who happened to come, a Chinese pastor, I think he was, spent time in America. And at the end of the time in America, this Chinese brother was asked what he thought about all that he'd seen. You know what his response was? After spending a lot of time in America, and this could also be in Britain, except we couldn't really be in Britain. It couldn't be in Britain. But in America, you know, very big churches and so forth and so forth. This Chinese brother said, I'm amazed that the church there can accomplish so much without the Holy Spirit. Could that also be said? We couldn't say we've accomplished a lot without the Holy Spirit, because God has brought us very low in this country, hasn't he, generally speaking. But the principle is this, though, is the person of the Holy Spirit. We can't preach without the Holy Spirit. We can't apply the Word of God without the Holy Spirit. We need a fresh revisiting of the true doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Perhaps the teaching of the Holy Spirit has been mangled by sections of the church in recent years that has made us draw back. We cannot afford to draw back from understanding the necessity of the Holy Spirit in everything that we do. Secondly is, again, to bring before our attention this teaching that we find through the book of Acts that the Holy Spirit brings about in the church for the church to be brought to be of one accord. What's the Greek word again? You can say it out loud. Homothumadon. Homothumadon. It spells in English as it sounds. It's got a beautiful ring to it, hasn't it? Homothumadon. Let's be praying for that. Let's be working towards it. But thirdly, as I close this morning, I will be remiss if I didn't close with a summary of this doctrine called justification by grace through faith. And as a preacher, I don't need to kind of come up with my own definition because the church have already done that for us. And we find it, one example, is in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Question number what? 33. How do you remember what question that is? It's the year that Jesus died, 33. That's just, I, I, it's a way to kind of memorize. Question 33 in the Shorter Catechism asks this question. What is justification? And here is the answer. 
Justification is an act of God's free grace, wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us, received by faith alone. Let me just say it one more time as we close. What is justification? Justification is an act of God's free grace wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us, received by faith alone.